This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 137th episode of The Quarter Bin, we're looking at Time Warp, number one from DC Comics, cover dated October-November 1979. No spoilers, but there are some good old-fashioned sci-fi comic book stories in this one. And yes, I am just getting over some sinus-related issues, and my voice might not be exactly the way it normally sounds. I apologize for that, unless you think this version sounds a lot better, in which case I apologize for my normal healthy voice, I guess? Well, let's not dwell on that. Let's get to some feedback. And we start with a tweet from J. Jones Goldstein from ComicsComicsComics.blog. He referenced an episode from earlier in the year saying, after listening to the awesome episode of the Quarterbin podcast from Feb Huary, where Shag and Professor Allen covered Doctor Who comics, I was super excited to find these at a flea market this morning. And the picture shows Doctor Who number eight, which we covered in that episode, and Doctor Who 11. I certainly hope you enjoy those ones, Jeremiah. And as a part of a recent Twitter conversation about Millennium, Dr. Ange reminded us all that he covered the Legion issue back on the epic, epic, epic Quarterbin 100. I sensed a bit of complaint, a bit of whining in the doctor's tweet, and I was glad to remind him that he chose that fate. Now, last time, we talked about Queen and Country. Even before the episode came out, we had some feedback. Because I had posted a cover of an issue, and I Was Joe said that he loved that series. I teased the episode, telling him to make sure he listened to what then was the next or upcoming quarter of an episode. And his reply echoed my conclusion in that episode. Queen and Country for a quarter is a great deal. Yes, Sir Iowa's Joe. Yes, it was. Billy Hogan from the Superman fan podcast and legitimate lover of independent comics said it was a great series that he hopes to collect in its entirety in paperback one day. I just have a handful of individual issues of the series at this point. And the irredeemable shag referencing the TV series that inspired the Queen and Country comics said he hoped we weren't sandbagging him. He added that it was a great series and that he couldn't wait to listen. Sir Iowa's Joe said he had just watched Atomic Blonde the night before this episode came out. I am definitely in the mood for some more spy goodness. And podcasting's Michael Bailey pointed out that I made an unintentional pun, well, 
He wasn't sure if it was unintentional or not, but it definitely was unintentional. About using the phrase, cutting to the chase, in talking about Queen and Country, you know, a comic with a lead character is named Tara Chase. Pretty sneaky, Professor. Pretty sneaky. Now, the irony, of course, is that I made a big deal earlier in the episode about an unintentional pun made by Luke Giaconetti about Vampirella and her... Well, you have to go back and listen to that last episode to remind yourself of his pun. Cosmic justice. What goes around comes around. And reigning listener of the year, Nathaniel Wayne, had a few things to say about the episode as well. In an email entitled, Oh, for bleep's sake, what the bleeping bleep is this bleep? Dear Professor Miser, it's always fun when you step out from the superhero fair because, as you put it, comics are a medium, not a genre. This sounds like a pretty well-crafted piece, and more to the point, it doesn't sound too bogged down in twists for the sake of twists. That's something I feel a few too many spy stories end up tripping over. I didn't read the comic it's based on, but the film Atomic Blonde springs to mind. It's a great visceral Cold War action story wrapped up in spy intrigue, with so many betrayals that by the end, I wasn't even sure who anybody worked for, what anybody's goals were, or what I was meant to feel about any of it. And yes, sir, I was Joe, I would take that as a personal attack. (laughs) No, but it is interesting that the movie came up twice in the feedback section. I do agree with Nathaniel's general thought that sometimes those twists within a twist, within a betrayal, within a double dealing, you know, that, that type of story can get so confusing because the writer is pretty confused themselves. Didn't have an ending, maybe the mumbo jumbo and look over here action sequence can trick us audience into thinking that the plot made sense. Nathaniel continues, I'm so glad you brought the potential problems with black and white with the loss of clear visual signifiers that color can bring. I actually had that problem with a book that isn't even in black and white. A few years back, a friend lent me the first collection of Ed Brubaker's Fatal, which is a supernatural-tinged noir story. It was okay, but the art really turned me off. In trying to evoke that noir feel, everything was so heavily shadowed and faces so often only half-lit that I couldn't tell who anyone was. And the time-jumping nature of the story compounded that problem. Great listening as always. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. Thank you, kind sir. Appreciate those comments. Yes, no doubt. If I can't tell who the character is, then, Mr. or Ms. Artist, you have failed. Paul Hicks, from the palindromically titled DCOCD, also had a few things to say about the bleeps. Well, thanks a lot. You really bleeped up this case. Well, of course, he didn't actually say bleeped, he said. I'm uh, familiar with uh, Detective Manners' colorful phraseology. You still going to hold the boy? Oh, you bet your blankety-blank bleep on you. Alan, you old bleeper, that was a bleeping good listen. I read a friend's copies of Q&C as they were coming out. 
when the first novel came out, my OCD forced me to pause the reading right there of the issues. See, Paul, that's what I was saying. I'm so glad to know that I'm not the only one with concerns about how to rightly read the Q&C novels and comics. But Paul did report that earlier in the year, he bought all four definitive collections and the novels to read when he has some time. Like maybe in 2023, bleepin' bleep. That last episode received social media love. From Clinton, from Coffee and Comics, Mike. From Comics in the Golden Age, Luke Giaconetti, Trennis Magnus, and Gene Hendricks. All three of those fine young gentlemen are from the two True Freaks, Internet Radio Network. Chris from BTO and Bat Books, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us. Karen from Between the Pages, Al Sedano from the Resurrections Podcast, Old School Ross, Paul from the Collected Edition, Dr. Ange, the Lev Gleason Twitter page, and Laurel, a.k.a. Mountainflower1, from the Batgirl Huntress Podcast. Thanks to everybody for your support. Time Warp number one had a cover price of $1, meaning I acquired this book at a very easy-to-calculate 75% discount off that original retail price. The cover by Mike Kaluda shows a futuristic man and woman firing futuristic weapons at a viney, green, swampy thing-looking monster. It gets across the idea of strange creatures in scary situations without leaning on classic sci-fi tropes like starfields and rocket ships. I remember seeing this title plastered across DC house ads in books that I read at the time, and the cover always intrigued me. And as I read this for this episode, nothing in it rang a bell, so I'm pretty sure I did not actually read this as a kid. But I have to say that when I saw the book in the quarter bin at World's Greatest, I immediately recognized it, knew what it was, and had to grab it. That cover had definitely stuck itself deep in my brain back when I was just a young little person. The cover also has a couple of exciting bits of information, such as the big dollar comic notation and the words science fiction in a pretty big font right across the top. This book does have a subtitle, Doomsday Tales and Other Things. But I have to admit that the, quote, other things, unquote, is kind of a little weak as far as cover copy goes. I have a feeling they inserted that just as a hold until they came up with a better catchphrase and never did, so we're stuck with that. But these things happen. The cover also brags that this contains eight all-new science fiction thrillers. Now, before we get into the stories in this issue, and we will talk about all eight of them, I want to talk about the two-page text piece right in the middle called Through the Time Warp that tells the story of how this sci-fi anthology got off the ground. I'll summarize and abridge some of this, but I'll also quote pretty good chunks of it as well. Every other month, we're going to have our writers take the reality you know and bend it. Turn it around so even though there are familiar elements within each tale, 
The ideas, concepts, and plot twists will send your imaginations to the outer realms of the fantastic. With pencils, pen, and ink, our artists will reshape the two-dimensional surface of the page into the weird and wonderful worlds of outer space, parallel planets, and past and future ages. And just when I was thinking that was a pretty tall order, the next paragraph says, A tall order? Have we attempted to take you too far on the journeys to the infinite? Perhaps. I mean, at least they understood the tough standard that they were laying down for the title. At this point, the piece moves to the history of how the book came to be, which is always one of my favorite parts of these issue one text bits. And it turns out that Joe Orlando, who at this point was the managing editor at DC, had always wanted to do a sci-fi comic. And that it was an empty space in their line, he thought. But there were other voices that came from people who thought they knew better. Science fiction doesn't sell, they said. It never has. So there was no science fiction anthology comic at DC. And around the same time, Jack C. Harris also wanted to do a sci-fi comic, having discovered both sci-fi and comics at the same time when he was a kid, a fan growing up of Superman and Tommy Tomorrow and Mystery in Space. He was also reading the short stories of Asimov, Clark, Paul Anderson, and others. And like Orlando, every attempt to pitch a sci-fi comic in the 70s was turned down flat. Until Star Wars came, and then Close Encounters, and others. Jumping rocket ship science fiction was finally selling on a big scale. DC jumped on the bandwagon, and a UFO book called Cosmic Encounters was considered. Saner heads prevailed, as it describes in the article, and the idea morphed into a possible revival of strange adventures. And Jack C. Harris was tapped for his dream project, reviving his favorite comic from when he was a kid. But forces converged, including winter weather in the Northeast, and a gas crisis, and just more generally, Jimmy Carter's disastrous economy. And DC axed a bunch of books and killed a number of scheduled ones, including what would have been that version of Strange Adventures. A few years later, things were stabilizing at the company, and Superman, the motion picture, had become a huge hit. And the company was once again open to sci-fi pitches. And Orlando and Harris still wanted to do one. So back to the article, I love this paragraph. Locked in the managing editor's office, he and the associate editor rattle off every title they could think of. Weird Planet, Strange Adventures of Sci-Fi, Space Warp, Mind Warp, Forbidden Futures, and hundreds more, but nothing sounded right. We're running up against our deadline, someone warned. We're running out of time. Time? Someone repeated. Time Warp! And here it is. Time Warp. And it's about time. Yes, it's also about other worlds, parallel dimensions, weird monsters and machines. It's everything you want it to be. It's DC Science Fiction Gift to you! At the end of the piece, they talk about the material they've gathered for future issues. At this advanced date, we're not certain who will be in issue one and who in issue two or even issue three. But so far, we've acquired work from Dennis O'Neill, 
Mike W. Barr, Michael Flesher, Bob Rosakis, George Cashden, Gil Kane, D.M. DeMatteis, Steve Ditko, Dick Giordano, and Paul Levitz. Others are clamoring to do work for this most prestigious of comics. And by the way, if you thought you heard me misspeak in that list, I didn't. The text piece actually calls him D.M. DeMatteis. Yes, there is some over-the-top carnival barkering here. Some of Stan's soapbox type of excitement, especially this being a most prestigious of comics. But to me, that just falls into the category of puffery, which is an obviously exaggerated claim for the purposes of promotion. It's more on the fun side of self-promotion rather than stepping over into the deceptive and fraudulent type of self-promotion. But there was a lot of information packed in there, too. And I really enjoyed the nuts and bolts of how this comic came to be. Like I said, that's always one of my favorite parts of issue number ones in the 1970s. Especially at DC, they seem to often have this sort of behind-the-scenes type of article. And now, we do have a standard to hold the book against. We have, in their own words, what they were trying to do with this. So after this break, we're going to come back and see how they did in delivering what they promised by looking at all eight, that's right, I said eight, all eight stories in Time Warp number one. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren of the Rad Adventures Network. We're a married couple who enjoy great stories of all kinds, including adventures, mysteries, science fiction, and fantasy. Please join us for a variety of podcasts focused on a range of pop culture topics. Trekker Talk is about 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the comic Trekker by writer and artist Ron Randall. It's a blend of classic sci-fi adventures and noir mysteries set in a retro future. Xenozoic Xenophiles is about the comic Xenozoic Tales by writer and artist Mark Schultz. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs. Warlord Worlds covers the many comics of writer and artist Mike Grell, including The Warlord, John Sable, Green Arrow, and The Legion of Superheroes. Sensational Sluice, where we talk about favorite mystery novels, movies, and TV shows. Fantastic Fantasies, where we share our favorite fantasy films and books. And Amazing Adventures, where we discuss action-packed adventure stories. Listen on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or visit RadAdventuresNetwork.com to find all of our shows and links to our social media pages. That's Rad, R-A-D, which is short for Ruth and Darren. And we're back. And as I threatened, we're going to talk about all eight stories in this issue. And the amount of detail we give to each story, the amount of analysis and discussion, well, that's going to be based on two things. One is the length of the story. These run anywhere from three to eight pages. And how much I like the story and how long I want to or don't want to talk about it. And first up, we have an eight-page story 
If the World Had to End Twice, by Denny O'Neill, with art by Rich Buckler and Bob Smith. The issue actually credits Dick Giornano as the inker, but a note in issue three corrects that credit to Bob Smith. We start in the gigantic Kronos satellite, where Commander Jake Saturn calmly adjusts his controls, harnessing and aiming the power of the sun, directing it to the earth below, bathing the planet in a fiery doom, a holocaust that sears the very air, bringing agonizing death to the human and Skrell alike. In a torment of panic they run, they crawl, they seek escape, but there is no escape. Now we see that these Skrell are green, multi-limbed aliens, sort of a cross between a reptile and an octopus. 24 hours later, on the satellite, Saturn and his two companions realize that it's finally done. They're all dead. The invaders and the people alike. Asked if it was necessary, he says that it was. I believe with all my soul that it was better for humanity to die than to live as slaves of the invaders. From the satellite, the three see that the Earth has plunged into a deep, long winter of ice and snow, and they note the irony that the terrible, consuming flames result in a new ice age. We learn that the two companions on the satellite with Saturn are Sarah, his wife, and a young boy, Billy, whose parents died when Saturn took over the satellite. He has gone progressively crazy, just painting and painting and painting all the day long. Well, he must be doing something else as Sarah becomes pregnant. And he is not glad. I should be glad that I helped bring a child into existence. You're a fool, woman. She does deliver a girl, but Saturn ignores his family and drives them away from him. Although they're on a satellite, so I don't know how far they actually get from each other. She did call him a page or two back, the most insane man who ever lived, the most evil. So his attitude maybe shouldn't have been a surprise to her. Fifteen years later, Saturn calls a meeting, and all of humanity, all four of them, convene. The changes on Earth have pulled their station out of orbit, and it will crash into the planet. Saturn tells the three others, their surviving boy, his daughter, and his wife, to fly in a spacecraft to the planet. He tells them that he has a second ship and will join them once he uses that laser gun once more, this time to melt the ice and bring life back to the planet so the survivors can begin civilization again. Except that Sarah does not go. She stays on the satellite with her crazy husband because she knew there wasn't a second ship. And just as he is about to confess something to his long-suffering wife, the satellite explodes. On the planet, the two survivors make plans about how to make the planet a fitting home for their future children. The end. First, let's deal with an issue that may have bumped you, I don't know. Just one word 
that may have bumped you. So I've heard fellow podcasters express confusion, perhaps dismay, upon seeing this word in comics from the 60s and 70s. And that is the word Holocaust. Because in the last few decades, remember, this is a 40-year-old comic, but in the last few decades, this word has come to mean primarily, if not exclusively, the German plan to exterminate the Jewish people in World War II. But of course, the word for centuries had a much simpler, more straightforward definition, meaning destruction by fire. Close to maybe conflagration, the way we would use that word today. But that meaning of Holocaust, the World War II meaning, had not taken root, had not overwhelmed the other meanings of the word just yet. I don't know of one particular tipping point for that, but obviously now, 40 plus years later, the word has taken on that exclusive meaning. But it hadn't at this point. And it's not a matter of insensitivity towards the plight of the Jewish people and the trauma of World War II. I say that because I've heard that question about this use in comics of the era. But language changes. The meanings of words change. And by the late 70s, the word Holocaust simply didn't mean what it means today. Or at least it meant more things than it does today. It's hard to make the case that the comic book industry of the 60s and 70s would be insensitive to Jewish concerns. They clearly didn't use this word out of insensitivity or out of ignorance. They used it because it didn't mean the single event that it means now. And there are other words that fit this criterion because words change meanings over time. That can be frustrating. There are words that once had general meanings just as words, but have become identified with perhaps a historical event like the Holocaust or a specific type of use of the word. I'm thinking of phrases like raped my childhood, or any language with a slavery context. Strong words that you can argue have broad meanings, but a careful, thoughtful person these days may avoid using them or at least understand that they'll face a pushback. There are terms that go the other way, too. Anytime someone talks about being crucified for something they said or did, it jars me. And I don't like it. But that word is losing its unique historical religious meaning and becoming more generic. Words change meaning. And then there are words that slip through. The fact that blitz is an acceptable term used in sports, video games, music, etc. Maybe the fact that the victims of that historical event ended up the victors in World War II. Maybe that's the difference? But it wouldn't surprise me if in 25 years things have changed. And use of that word in common parlance as it is today is seen as indicative of our insensitivity or cruelty. And it's not that using that word now is cruel. It's just that the word right now doesn't mean that or doesn't mean just that. Again, in the same way Holocaust didn't mean that or just that. 40 years ago. And I'm comfortable letting the population involved, the victims, 
police the language in terms of acceptable and unacceptable use of these words. So for the examples above, that may be African-American groups or civil rights activists or Jewish organizations or Holocaust museums, etc. Or if we're talking about language from a Native American context, there are the tribal authorities. We let them give the thumbs up or thumbs down to college sports team names or mascots or bits of pregame pageantry. If the Seminole Nation says that what Florida State University does before football games is okay, who am I to argue? So circling back, maybe until the British complain about the Blitz, we can use it. I guess. (laughs) But enough diverging into the confusing world of linguistics. Let's get on to the story itself, and I do want to spend a little time here, and I feel bad for that above digression, because this story is really good. At least, it gets off to a bold, dramatic start. Again, here's the thing. You're pitching a new series, a new concept. You're trying to introduce something different to readers. So what do you do on the first page? You destroy the earth. That is a bold narrative choice. You're telling readers that anything can happen in this issue. And although there are, let's say, issues in the relationship between Saturn and his wife, the way he treats her, but it it does actually make for a complex relationship, and that's kind of a bold move itself. This is an adult story in, in the real meaning of adult or mature. And the two people who will restore the Earth They're not named Adam and Eve, which is a trope we've seen in sci-fi many times. So the team here gets props for avoiding that. There is one storytelling failure, and that is the notion of Saturn just painting and painting and painting, spending all of his time doing that. That is referenced and sort of called back to in a very clunky way at the end of the story, and that it totally fell flat for me. So this is not a groundbreaking story by any means, but it is an interesting story, and it's a bold story, and I do think it's a good way to start the issue, especially this being the first issue of this new title. Next, we move to a six-page story, Mating Game. Written by Michael Flesher, with art by Steve Ditko. We start backstage at a dance club where Mona, one of the dancers, has been going out with Roger practically every night for two weeks. The other girls say she must be crazy about him. Ha! Roger's a first-class creep, that's all he is. Cares more about collecting insects than he does about girls. If he didn't spend so much dough on me, I'd drop him in a second. One of the girls says he can spend money on her anytime. I don't care if he eats insects, much less collects them. Roger has purchased Mona an expensive swimsuit for their trip to the beach, and all the way there, he can only talk about insects. And at the beach, he kindly points out that a spider is climbing up her thigh, but she reacts by killing it. And he reacts by pushing her and yelling at her. Fortunately, a good-looking muscle man saves her, punching Roger, telling him 
to start learning some manners. This man, Don Harper, steals Mona right from under Roger, and she goes off with him. Two weeks later, Don and his friends invite all of the dancing girls for a picnic. But when they get there, there's an orange hovercraft waiting, and everyone just piles in. Turns out, it's a spaceship. And Don has a few things to explain. We're all aliens, he tells them, from a distant world who've come to Earth to find mates for ourselves. It turns out that all of the men are widowers. The planet they arrive at is beautiful, lush, and the girls like it. But they're still confused about why these men have to travel to Earth to find mates. It turns out that the key was that day on the beach when Roger, real name Zelm, became incensed when she killed the spider. Mona, ours is a world populated by giant intelligent spiders. The ability to assume the appearance of other life forms is merely a genetically useful device we have to find and lure attractive mates. And as Don himself turns into a giant spider, he says that they are, in fact, widowers, black widowers. It is the males who bear young on our world. The females, alas, die within moments after mating. Mona tries to run, but it's so hard to tear yourself away from a truly passionate, warm embrace. And back on Earth, Roger is picking up another lovely lady for a date. To the beach. The end. There is a lot to say about this story. It's testament to what you can do in six short pages of twists and turns, characters coming and going, multiple locations, and a twist ending. It's easy to forget that sci-fi started with short story magazines. That's where the genre got going. Amazing Story, Super Science, the magazine of fantasy, and science fiction astounding. This is where Asimov and Bradbury and dozens, scores of others, got off to their starts, proving that eventually there would be a market for sci-fi novels. But it started with short stories. So I totally have a soft spot for sci-fi when it's presented in short format, whether that be in prose or in comics. The twist at the end was great, and the reveal that Don, the hero from the beach, was working with Roger, that the nerd guy was kind of the scout, the weakling on the beach was in cahoots with the guy kicking sand in his face. That was a huge surprise. Did not see the spider metamorphosis coming, and I did not see that part of the plot coming either. So, a dramatic ending, really good. I am a fan of Ditko and his art, and by the late 70s, his comic work had slowed down a bit, but he was still doing high-quality work. Shade the Changing Man had been gone maybe a year at this point, and he definitely still had it. All of the people in this look like Ditko people, and Roger bears more than a passing resemblance to Peter Parker, by the way. I don't know if the term meta-narrative or metafiction was in common parlance at this time in the late 70s, but we do have a bit of that going on here because we have the artist best known for co-creating Spider-Man, a decade and a half later working for another company, drawing a story about men who turn into spiders. This cannot have been a coincidence. 
how Ditko and Michael Fleischer got paired up together for this, whether it was one of them who suggested the story or whether it was someone in editorial. But after I realized that and put two and two together, I liked this story even more. And I was already thinking it was pretty good. Next is another six-pager, The Righteous Ones, by George Cashden with art by Dick Giordano. Nuclear weapons destroy the earth in a family made up of a strict religious father and his two daughters. They were trapped underground for a time. Uh, that saved them. He assumes that they were left alive because they were the only righteous ones on earth at the time. They explore that land only to run across a pair of big, orange, mean-looking aliens. The kids assume that they were asleep millions, maybe billions of years, and that evolution and mutations made this being. The dad tells them that that is crazy thinking, but he's actually correct, which is a strange storytelling choice, because it's only been a number of hours, as a matter of fact. One of these aliens grabs one of the daughters, but the dad has a rifle, and in his crazy zeal, he's going to shoot one of his daughters. He would rather Felicity die by his own hand than by this alien, this devil's cohort. But the other daughter rushes into her father, messing up his aim, and he kills the alien. The other alien grabs the dad, who is all about how this is not just, not for the sinless, not for the righteous ones. The surviving alien plops small discs on each survivor's heads, enabling them to communicate with the alien. It has only been a few hours since the blast, which the aliens viewed. From our world, we observed your holocaust. Uh, well, there you go again. <laughs> the aliens came to the rescue of the survivors, but the alien that the father killed was the pilot. By the time another can be sent here, you will all be dead of nuclear poisoning. The end. Now, this one was just okay, because it had a few pretty big flaws in it. It seemed like they were trying to go with the judgmental religious kook, but he wasn't trying to kill the alien. That was an accident after his one daughter rammed into him. It was kind of her fault that they killed the pilot, much more than his. Yes, he got the gun out and was willing to fire it, so I guess that's part of his responsibility. I don't know that they made the point they were trying to, or at least it got muddled up a bit, because he goes on for the last page about how it was an honest mistake on his part. But that's not what happened. It wasn't an honest mistake. It was an accident. Those are actually quite different things, and it certainly wasn't his fault. So I was confused about that, whether they didn't want to commit fully to the dad being at fault, wanted to add another dramatic moment with the, the daughter, not realizing that it would undercut the rest of the story. It was just not fully baked, I think, as a story. And of course, the twist ending, that they killed their only way off the dying planet, that was solid, albeit maybe not surprising. But that twist was probably the strongest point of the story. It's just that getting there was kind of a bumpy road. 
Now actually, before we get to story four, I need to mention the hostess ad between stories three and four. Because if you're doing a sci-fi comic, the perfect hostess ad is Wonder Woman Saves the Astronauts. Like picking Ditko to draw the spider-based story, having this hostess ad could not have been an accident. Editorial was totally on their game in this issue. What a great choice. Now that does, in fact, bring us to story four, a seven-pager called The Survivors by Mike W. Barr and Tom Sutton. As man gropes for the stars, not all of his encounters with alien races will be peaceful. Case in point, Merg, a distant planet colonized by Earthlings, much to the dismay of the planet's native race. Two such opposing forces can only breed conflict. Only one race will be, dramatic pause as we bring in the title of the story, The Survivors. By the way, the native Merg are ugly, green, multi-limbed beings with a pair of weird-looking eye stalks. Our heroine, Laurel, has been drafted to a special program where she is transformed temporarily into a guise exactly like the monster aliens, who they call Smellies. She suspects she was selected because her relationship with Brad Samuels violates council rules. Her mission as a spy is to infiltrate the enemies and return with intelligence regarding the Smellies' attack plans. But she cannot stop their plans, which involve directing the planet's volcanic gases towards the humans, and the monsters destroy them all. Laurel survives because, at the time, she was not in the settlement, but was undercover with the Merg. But she has a plan. And even though it will kill her, Laurel figures out how to kill the Merg with the gas, which she does to avenge the death of Brad. Wandering for hours before she heard another human sound, but she did. It was Brad. He remained alive because he was a green Merg alien spy disguised as a human. And now everyone on the planet is dead of both species with the exception of these two lovebirds, who are now tragically stuck in their original states. She as a human, and he as a merg. The end. I apologize if that synopsis was a bit confusing. But here's the thing. The story was a bit confusing. (laughs) But the double, double cross was a good plot point, and each race killing off the other, save for the two that were at that moment transformed into the other for purposes of spying. We do have another ending of the Adam and Eve variety. This one different in that the couple are different species, so there's no telling how or if the rebuilding and repopulation of this planet is going to work. But that ending reveal was kind of a cool surprise, and I did like the idea that each of these warring factions had spies infiltrating the enemy. That strategy is as old as war itself. And even in the future, 
we're on an alien world, it makes sense that that ploy would be implemented and implemented in this case on both sides. Now, this one is not as tragic for the humans as that first story was because this is just an outpost, a colony. There are humans elsewhere. This is not a complete Battlestar Galactica situation where this represents the whole of our remaining species. So it's tragic and has a valuable and thought-provoking message about colonization. But this is not the end of humanity, unlike many of the prior stories we've already covered. More often than not, like this one, I find personal tragedy more compelling than stories of planet-wide or even species-wide destruction. That's shocking and attention-getting, but these smaller stories have the chance to be more resonant, at least for me. And that brings us to the fifth and shortest story in the issue, Forecast, by Jack C. Harris, and art again by Steve Ditko. This one is a mere three pages. Was the impending invasion a dark secret, unknown to the people of Earth? Or were other forces at work that could predict the unsuspecting planet's fateful future? We see a fantastic-looking spaceship. It is Ditko, after all. Flying through an extremely colorful and amazing sector of space. It is Ditko, after all. Inside, Superion is planning his invasion and conquest. They're close enough to monitor Earth communications to make sure that we are unaware of the impending invasion. But what the aliens hear through their translation circuits is this. Coming down from the west, expected to hit by this evening, Superion points to the map on the screen which duplicates their invasion course exactly. They know. They are prepared. We are prepared. Ready for the worst to come. Realizing that Earth is prepared for invasion, the alien ship prepares to turn, but they find themselves under attack. We're being smashed, attacked by millions and millions of crystal ships. Arg! And the crystals continue to fall and they land softly on the earth below, and lost amid the drifting snow is a minute spaceship, a tiny testimonial to monumental conceit and over-self-confidence. And in the last panel, the scary broadcast continues. We're confident that the city will be ready to handle the potentially difficult snowfall, and that's my forecast for this evening. The End this one was absolutely delightful. So reminiscent of the old sci-fi books that I read growing up. Now, I wasn't reading Golden Age sci-fi fresh off the shelves. I'm not that old. But we had a lot of those best-of collections, maybe for a particular year, or one that I remember was the Sci-Fi Hall of Fame anthology collection. So I was reading in the 70s, but a lot of what I was reading were stories from the 40s and 50s and 60s, in addition to the 70s. 
And a lot of those stories, especially the older ones, dealt with this idea of scale, a theme picked up on by Dr. Seuss as he wrote about Whoville. But between Land of the Giants and 50-foot-tall women and Incredible Journey, a lot of early sci-fi dealt with shrinking down or blowing up. Think Ant-Man and Giant-Man and all of those comic book characters with similar powers. It's a classic theme of classic sci-fi, and this one did it really well. So reminiscent of those old stories I used to read and love, and with humor. The small-scale stuff added humor, but then you have the weather forecast stuff. So you had two sort of different humorous ideas, and they interacted in a pretty solid way. And as good as the Ditko art was in the story before, although he really only got to go full Ditko when the men transformed into spiders, in this very short story, three pages, 13 panels, he really gets to go crazy with spaceships, outer space, aliens, etc. And did I mention that all of this was done in three pages, just 13 total panels? It is a very impressive feat, a very fun read, one of my absolute favorites in the whole issue. And then we get to the sixth story, an eight-page one called The Monsters, by Michael Fleischer, with art this time by Jerry Grandinetti. In a year of the distant future, Michael Denton, his wife Gloria, and Les Harding have journeyed to this barren planet in the Alpha Centauri star system in search for Michael's brother, Stephen Denton, who vanished while exploring the world several months ago. Little do they suspect the grisly fate that lies in wait for them. Steve's last communication had been a one-word message. Monster. Shortly after their arrival, they face a sandstorm, and in that, Michael Denton falls down a huge cliff. But instead of mourning, his wife Gloria and Les Harding are excited. Don't you see how lucky we are, Gloria? We wanted him dead, and now he is dead. In a real accident. They go to check on his body, chatting about how great it will be living back on Earth on his money. We don't want him turning up alive on us, do we? But at the bottom of the cliff, somehow Michael has survived. He finds a huge, puffy, ugly, red, pink sort of creature approaching, and he shoots it. Then foraging for food, he eats some bright red berries. But he finds himself, shortly after, turning into one of those red, pink creatures. He quickly surmises that it was his brother that he just shot, that he had done the same thing that he had. Before the transformation is complete, he sets a fire and knows he has to find the others while he can still speak or run the equipment on the ship before he is fully transformed into a beast. Not far away, our cheating lovers see the fire in the cave and approach. Gloria sees the monster, and in her terror, bumps her head. 
The other cheater, Les, he follows and sees the monster hovering over Gloria. He fires the weapon, but misses. And somehow, he ends up sinking into the sand. The power of the explosive force of his gunshot weakened the sand, and he got sucked down like quicksand. With his last vestige of humanity, Michael the monster transmits a single word message from his ship. Monsters. And in the last panel, several months later, another human ship lands, weapons ready, to kill the monsters. And huddling away are two big, ugly, red, puffy monsters. The end. Not bad at all. I liked the family intrigue angle, the soap opera aspects, as well as the irony of Michael killing his brother and then transforming into that very monster. And the irony that husband and wife are reunited as monsters is intriguing after she thinks she has, well, not gotten away with murder, but instead gotten away without having to murder. She was already kind of a monster already. The thing about short stories is that, at least in sci-fi, they will often end in a twist of some kind. I think that predated Twilight Zone, but that TV show, I think, really cemented the notion that short stories, especially sci-fi stories, should end with a twist. And this one, actually, almost all of the ones in this issue do end, in fact, with some sort of twist. So I do have a question for Tom Panarese, or Stella, hosts of Required Reading with Tom and Stella. Actually, let's be honest, this is a question for Tom, because we all know Stella doesn't listen to any of our shows. Anyway, Mr. Panarese, do mainstream and literary short stories, do they tend to end in this similar way with what I call the punchline, and I don't mean one that has to be humorous, but with a punch, with a twist. I do remember a few that do, but I wonder how common that is in more mainstream or literary fiction, and if that type of twist ending might be even more common in sci-fi. Now, this is not a great comic story. It's fine. It's good. The art does not help it, though. But that end, that really did help elevate it. And then we have our penultimate story. Story number seven is Rescue by Bob Rosakis with art by Don Newton and Dan Atkins. This one is six pages long. A male-female team of spaceship test pilots crash on an alien planet, and it is doubtful that their SOS call was delivered before the crash. The company that sent them off had computer tested the ship, but Durkin and his observer Laura were tasked to get the bugs out of the ship on its maiden space flight. They quickly realized that the ship doesn't have bugs. The ship is now one big bug. With nothing better to do, Durkin puts the moves on his cute observer. 
But she rebuffs him. I came along as an observer, not a plaything for you. While he cooks an alien animal over an open fire, a ship lands nearby. Laura knows that it's not one of theirs, but they don't have many other options. The alien being was learning how to communicate with them. I see you have sustained damage. I am quite capable of making proper repairs. But before everything went black for the humans, they realized that the alien ship was not communicating with them. It was communicating to their damaged spaceship. My metal compatriot, we will be able to leave this planet as soon as I get the bugs out of you. The end. Did you get it? The humans were the bugs that needed to be removed. So it had a twist. It had a horror twist at that. But other than that, I don't know. I don't really have a lot to say about this story. I guess it was a page filler. I've been picking up a lot of sci-fi and fantasy magazines lately in the last few years from Half Price Books, issues from the 80s all the way up into the early 20-teens. I can get them for 50 cents or a buck, which is a great deal for 175, uh, 200 pages of prose, short stories, and other features. And in these collections, no matter how good a particular issue is, no matter how easily worth the 50 cents or a buck it is, there's always one or two stories that just aren't quite as good as the rest. And that's what this story was. The most forgettable one of the whole batch. And we wrap up the issue with its finale, the seven-page story, The Man Who Could See Yesterday, by Paul Levitz, with art by Jim Apero. Brendan, the businessman or trader, and his team of explorers headed to the Starways to find a new culture that could be exploited and earn that mega-credit bonus. They find an unregistered planet, but they quickly learn that that is because it is in the restricted catalog of the United System. Any landing on the planet Defia is strictly forbidden. But Brendan commandeers a one-man ship and heads down. Doing a quick reconnaissance, he listens in on their translated transmissions. He couldn't believe his ears. But it was true, and Brendan almost collapsed. They were making deals based on knowledge of events and prices in the days to come. What? Every single native of Defia can tell the future? Blazes! I know this is worth a fortune, but how do I make sure I take the best advantage of it? Before he can answer that question, the planetary forces shoot down his small transport. The natives leave him for dead, and they aren't far wrong. I was alive, but I was a bloodier mess than the zoo at feeding time. But with his translator working in blaster charge, Brendan figured capturing an alien 
would be a cakewalk. And it was. Never heard of a sentient creature that a Sink-5 blaster couldn't topple. When the creature woke up, Brendan hooked it to a ship's computer, which was telling the alien everything it needed to know about the interstellar business world. What's worth money, and how to get it. Add that to your special powers, and it's a recipe for wealth. Now start cooking. The alien spoke about a stock market rising in the near future, a coming shortage of tungsten. But while Brendan is taking notes and planning how to spend his coming bundle, his world explodes. A second alien had snuck up and knocked him out. And when Brendan awakens, he finds that he has been hooked up to the computer, and one very obvious point is made. It was very foolish of you to think you could outwit us. We foresaw your arrival, of course, and your plan. It turns out that the aliens have uses for Brendan. We can predict tomorrow, see the future, but there is a price we pay. No one born of our kind has a memory that lasts beyond a sun's rise, perhaps two. We cannot long recall our own predictions. But now, the alien continues, we have you. You shall be our memory. You who can see yesterday so clearly. And in the last panel, we see a tired, haggard Brendan, still hooked up to a ship's computer. They've gone from farmers to industrialists in a month. And soon, unless someone finds this warning in time, they'll be headed for the stars. The end. Now this one took the concept of the twist and really did something exciting with it. And I've been trying to figure out what I like so much about this story, why it stands out among the others with similar ironic endings. Maybe it's that the ironic ending is the exact mirror of what the plan was instead of the human using the unique characteristics of the alien brain for economic gain. They are using the unique characteristics of his brain for economic gain. The story does not make this next point, but I think it's there. And that is that if these two races work together, not competitively, but as partners, together, they would be a power-packed team. Each one has what the other needs. And if they could negotiate a truce, they could be unstoppable in the galactic economy. But sometimes success like that in the long term involves looking past just the narrow short term. And Paul Levitz did one thing in the scripting that I think makes a big difference. And that is that he gave us the clues. The story is called The Man Who Could See Yesterday, which you have to admit is an odd thing to call a story. I mean, can't we all see yesterday, see into the past, know some bits of history? What's so unusual about that? And then even better, even stronger, he tells us very clearly that the aliens can see a few days or weeks into the future. Which means that a few days ago, or up to a few weeks ago, they knew that this was going to happen. That's not a surprise twist in the sense that it's something we could not have known as readers. 
because it says it right there. It's not subtext. It's in the text. And the first time I read the story, I totally blew by that. It did not sink in. I didn't see it. It was there, but I didn't see it. And that is great work, great scripting. And it's a very nice way to end this book, especially after the less than exciting story seven. This one, story eight, was very, very enjoyable and is a really nice bookend to the very good opening story. Starting an issue like this, an anthology book, is the most important thing. But I think ending it well really matters as well. It really affects the overall view that a reader has on the entire work. It really impacts their verdict. The verdict on Time Warp number one. 64 pages of mostly pretty good sci-fi comics. More than 50 pages of content. Eight stories, a couple of which were very good, and only one, maybe two, that were sort of clunkers. I had high expectations. I had high hopes. I was really excited to have found this one in the cheap bins. And this totally met and exceeded those elevated expectations. This is a definite quarter bin steal. That wraps up our coverage on Time Warp number one, bringing episode 137 of the Quarterbin podcast to a close. Sometime soon, hopefully next time, we'll be visiting one indie publisher for the first time as we look at Star Wars Tales from Mose Eisley from Dark Horse Comics, cover dated 1996. And if all goes well, I won't be alone. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the episode or sci-fi comics from the Bronze Age, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The quarter bin podcast is part of the relatively geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Sir! Sure.